I thought it just would be appropriate that we would turn to Mark chapter 13 today. And so if you guys would turn there in your Bible. And that we would be reminded about, by Jesus, about the signs of the end of the age and his return and the need for the people of God to be awake. And so I just titled this message, Stay Awake, this morning, okay? So if you got turkey in your belly, stay awake. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for 2014. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have for us in this new year. And we, uh, we look forward, God, with anticipation of what you want to do in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, Lord, in our community, in this country, in this world. And God, we want to be a church awake. We want to be people who have not drifted off into sleep spiritually, Lord, but we want to be uh, alive and present and and aware of what you are doing. And so God, we just ask this morning that you would prick our hearts, that you would stir us, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would wake us up, God, and that you'd give your church great vision for this next year, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 13. Verse one and two, we read this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, to appreciate what Jesus is saying here in regards to the temple and this prophecy that not one stone would be left upon another. Uh, it's appropriate that we just remember some, some quick historical stuff, okay, about, about the temple. The first temple we know was built by uh, King Solomon. That temple was eventually destroyed when the Babylonians came and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and took many of the Jewish people, the Israelites, off into captivity in Babylon. And after the time of captivity in Babylon, the Babylonian king, Artaxerxes, uh, permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. The year was 445 BC, okay? Just, you know, it's kind of interesting. And the city of Jerusalem had already been repatriated under the, the decree of King Cyrus, as Isaiah had prophesied would happen. And so under the leadership of Ezra, the temple uh, was rebuilt. And under the leadership of the high priest Zerubbabel, temple practices were reinstituted. And the scripture tells us that on the day when all that started again, um, the people who had seen beforehand, who had seen Solomon's temple and it survived all those years, wept when they, when they saw this pathetic little structure that was now had replaced Solomon's temple. And then 19 years before the birth of Christ, so this continues for 400 years, this temple, 1900 year, or 19 years before the birth of Christ, Herod the, Herod the Great took on this project where he would remodel the temple. And his remodeling project continued actually for 80 years. Herod, Herod the Great has gone down in history as one of the, a great architect, you know, built Masada, built Caesarea as a great port city, built all sorts of things throughout the land of, land of Israel. And, um, but the project and all that he had in mind for God's temple took 80 years. Could you imagine that for a renovation project? You think about the lifetime of Jesus, the entire lifetime of Jesus, the temple was undergoing renovations that 
that Herod had started. And the temple was actually not completed until the year 63. So Jesus has been crucified. He's ascended into heaven. 30 years have gone by. And finally, the temple is finished. That's how great this building had become. Uh, the, the beauty of the temple is well documented. The historian Josephus says that the outside of the temple was covered with gold plates. That they, that they hung there and that it was so brilliant when the sun shone upon it with the, with the gold and what they call the Jerusalem stone, this white stone that's quarried in that area and that they used to build it, that it was absolutely blinding when the sun shone on it. That the city of Jerusalem from a distance looked like it was covered with snow because so much light shone off this thing. Uh, and, and so when the disciples pointed out some of the stones that were incorporated, their size, the beauty of all that was happening, um, you know, it's appropriate that Jesus responded. You know that they actually, they actually say in some, some of the stones uh, are 50 feet long, 15 feet deep, 25 feet high, solid stone, so precisely fitted that you can't put a butter knife between them, Okay. It, it was an amazing, amazing structure. And prior to Herod's renovation, that, that temple that Ezra and Zerubbabel had seen be built was stood 90 feet tall. After Herod was done with it, it stood 180 feet, 18 stories. So this is a great, great structure. And so it's no wonder that the disciples commented on the massive stones and the beauty of the, the temple. In reality, there was nothing in the world like it at that point in time. It was a structure that was at the center of Israel's spiritual life. Uh, so much so that the Jewish people would take their oaths and they would swear by the gold of the temple. And Jesus, of course, confronted that practice. We read that in the Gospels. He, he, told his, he told his followers not to swear by the gold of the temple. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And it was for that reason that Jesus said certain things like that about the temple that they considered him blasphemous in some of the things that he said. Um, he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, it's recorded as he was teaching the crowd, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. What? How could you say that? We get that idea as we consider some of these things. Um, the magnificent of its temple, of the temple and its priority in the place of Israel and their worship also shows why the leaders were confused and infuriated when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. They, they didn't know that he was speaking of his body. And so you imagine the minds of the disciples when they said, do you see these buildings? As they pointed out the buildings and Jesus said, do you see them? Not one stone will be left upon another. It'll all be thrown down that they, they were blown away by this conversation. Uh, today, the Temple Mount, we know there's, there's no trace of the fact that that building was there except for the stones that are cast down off the Temple, off the Temple Mount. Um, it's so removed from the, tra the traces of it are so removed from the Temple Mount that they say, well, I don't know, maybe it sat here where the Dome of the Rock was, where it is. Maybe it sat here to the north. We're not totally sure. But Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the Temple was fulfilled in the year 70. Uh, after a few years of being laid siege to by the Romans, the city of Jerusalem fell and the last survivors that were there fled into the temple and it wasn't under the command of the general Titus who was 
overseeing this siege of the city, but one of his soldiers tossed a torch into the temple and the whole thing lit up and it burned with the people inside of it and the gold melted and it went between all the cracks and all the stones and so Titus issued the order, pull it all apart. We got to get every ounce of gold out of there and that's where the words of Jesus were fulfilled. Uh, The destruction was so complete that People don't know exactly where that temple stood. Now the literal fulfillment of, that, of this prophecy that we see here in Mark really sets a tone for the rest of the chapter. Okay? We should expect a literal fulfillment of the things we're about to read. So let's check it out. Verse 3 and 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So there's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're mulling around in their minds what Jesus has said to them. They've they've left the temple. They've traveled down into the Kidron Valley, probably up through the Garden of Gethsemane and up to the top of the Mount of Olives on the east side of the Temple Mount. And now they're looking back at the temple and they're sitting there with Jesus Uh, probably about a 25-minute walk. And as they're contemplating all these things, they fire this question at him when they get over there. Um, Now, as we look at these questions this morning, we've got to remember that the disciples do not have a full comprehension of all that's about to happen in regards to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is days away from being crucified. So the questions that they're asking here, I mean, they're confused about some things that that are going on and what's going to happen. And they thought that the destruction of the temple coincided with the end of the age and the return of the Lord in their theology and all that stuff. So they said, how's this all going to work? And so they asked these questions. So a couple things I just want to point out as we talk about signs that will happen at the end of the age. We've got to look at this in the proper context. This is a Jewish rabbi teaching his Jewish disciples about the end of the age and how things will be finalized in response to a question about a Jewish temple. Okay? Real Jewish theme here. Secondly, we read here that, of course, that uh, we have to interpret these things in light of all scripture. We can't just look at it uh, by itself, it's not a standalone stri- scripture. We've got to compare it against the prophecies in scripture about the end of the age. We don't isolate this one passage, but we compare it with the rest of scripture so that we can understand. I would also say this, this, this chapter uh, speaks prophetically about a future time that is yet to come, but it has practical implications for us because Jesus is going to say here time and time again, stay awake, be alert. Understand the times, essentially. And prophetic passages like this one motivate us, I would say, to live for Jesus today. That's why I love Bible prophecy. Because I go, oh, he's coming. I got to be awake. I got to be ready for his coming. And I would also say this. We need to know uh, these things that are spoken here are about the future. Jesus is going to speak about a a future time of great tribulation that will come upon the earth, a seven-year period where God will pour out his wrath on a sinful world. And many of the Old Testament prophets uh, spoke of this time. They referred to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, Jeremiah spoke of it. Uh, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Daniel, 
Uh, John spoke about it in the book of Revelation. There's Matthew chapter 24 and 21. So just a few things in regards to this. It's a Jewish context. We interpret it in light of all scripture. It's practical for us because it's telling us to stay awake. And it's speaking of a future time. And so as we begin to look at this teaching of Jesus, we're going to see that it's going to escalate what he speaks of. The, the, the signs are going to escalate. One more thing. No mention of the church in this passage. As we go here, there is no mention of the church. In fact, in the minds of the disciples, speaking to Jews, the church was a mystery to them. They did not know about the church yet. They, they did not know about us, the body of Christ. And so I guess the, the question, right? The question of the ages, is the church present for the great tribulation? And we know there's different different theological standpoints on that. Some people say the church is present through the whole tribulation. Others say halfway through the tribulation, the church gets raptured. Then there's that pre-tribulation standpoint. That's the one I hold to that the church is, is raptured into heaven before the wrath of God is poured out on earth and things really ramp up. And so, you know, that's my interpretation and my conviction. I, I always say this. Wherever you stand on that stuff, it's not a dog, it shouldn't be a dogmatic thing. It's not a test of someone's orthodoxy as a Christian and their spirituality. You know, what matters is, is your life surrendered to Jesus and are you looking forward to his coming? That's what really matters. But in my mind, the pre-tribulation position is the one that most turns the heart to look for the coming of the Lord. And so Jesus is going to give us a little bit of insight in this. Verse, verse 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You know, the Mormons claim that Jesus returned to earth and he came to North America and he met the North American Indians and he revealed to them a greater teaching that was written down by Joseph Smith. The Jehovah Witnesses claimed that Jesus came back in 1898 and then they changed that. They said, no, it was 1914. And then I think they moved on that position. They said, no, just Jesus is present in the Watchtower Society. He's invisibly present. He's invisibly returned to the earth and he's present with us. You know, I once watched a, a documentary on TV about a Mexican guy who claimed that he was the Messiah, that he was Jesus Christ living in the mountains of Mexico. He's got all of these followers. You know, the New Age movement teaches about the deity of man and that we have a Christ consciousness that can be woken up within us. See, Jesus just said this, look, many will come and there will be an increasing frequency of those claiming to be Messiah, to be the Messiah. Uh, elsewhere, the Bible teaches us that, that the Jewish people will accept one of these coming imposters. History says that in the century that Jesus, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, no less than 64 men appeared on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. And the warning is this, watch out, don't be deceived. Many will come claiming to be me. Verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. All the history, 
Wars have filled the headlines, right? There's, you know, all the stuff even going on currently in the world. I think of Russia and the Ukraine. I think of just some of the things that we've seen this past year with, in 2014, with ISIS, with the threat of Iran, with what's happening in Iraq, uh, the war that happened in Israel. Um, yeah, uh, this morning, actually, I, I read Netanyahu made a statement about Iran's increasing plan to create chaos in Judea and Samaria and his plans to respond to that. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to me that all of these nations that make, have been making a lot of noise in 2014 are nations that we look to and have pointed to for many years in Bible prophecy and said they're going to be major players. Syria, Iraq, Iran, Russia, Israel, the whole deal. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah, I believe, 1717, that Damascus will be wiped off the face of the earth overnight. It's the oldest city in the world. It's the most, uh, yeah, yeah, the oldest city, I think over 4,000 years, Damascus has been populated and, and never wiped off the map. But Isaiah prophesied it will happen. And so Jesus said, there'll be wars. There'll be rumors of wars. These things have to happen. Don't be alarmed. You know, I think of the nations of the world, they, they long for peace, but there will never be peace until Jesus, until King Jesus returns. So you can't have peace without the Prince of Peace present. And when Jesus Christ comes, he will establish that peace. And so Jesus said, do not let the threat of war alarm you. It has to happen. And so throughout history, the world has always functioned that way. But Jesus says the end is still yet to come. And that verse is important because it puts this passage in context for us. It reveals that Jesus is talking about the, the end days, the last days. He's talking about the time before the end. Verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So political conflicts, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, uh, famines, which are often the result of war happening or the result of the way man has treated the environment or what is happening with the climate. And we know there's, there's lots of talk in the world about food shortages and those fears and the costs of food uh, being driven up and especially simple products like, like wheat and things like that. Uh, he mentions earthquakes here. The world's always faced earthquakes. At times the scripture reveals that the Lord uses earthquakes as instruments of communicating his judgment and his wrath uh, to the world. I, I wouldn't say that I believe all earthquakes are the result of God's wrath but certainly some are. And, you know, we could think of the, the past decade we were talking about it this morning. It's ten, 10 years since uh, the Indonesian tsunami. We were yapping about it this morning, some of the guys before the, the service. But we've seen many serious earthquakes, natural disasters in recent years. And statistics seem to point to the fact that these things are increasing in intensity and in frequency. And Jesus said, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Hey, I forgot to announce. Will and Vanessa Dow had a baby boy on 
the 24th, right? 24th, Melanie, is that right? Yep, uh, Kai William Dow was born, and they didn't want a Christmas baby, so uh, that's perfect, December 24th. You know, birth pangs increase. The labor pains of a, of, of a woman increase in their frequency and intensity as uh, the body is preparing to give birth. And Jesus points to all of these things that we read here about, about war, about the presence of an, the anti, different antichrists, famine, earthquakes, political trouble. They've always been there, but Jesus said they will increase in their frequency and in their intensity as this time of the end approaches. Verse 9, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Jews. I'm not a Jew. I don't have any concerns that I'll be flogged in a synagogue, really. Uh, but you could take this as further, you know, I would even say this. You could take this as further evidence that that. Christians, that the church is not present at the beginning part of this seven-year tribulation. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So before the end can come, the end of days, the gospel has to be preached to the ends of the earth. Here's the thing though. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible teach that the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth, is it a prerequisite for the rapture of the church? It's not. In fact, Revelation teaches that during the time of the tribulation, there will be 144,000 witnesses who will go throughout the earth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation teaches us that Moses and Elijah will come to earth and they will preach about Jesus. Revelation chapter 14 even teaches that at the time of the great tribulation, there will be angels that will fly over the earth proclaiming the gospel. And that the hearts of men will be so wicked that they will still resist. Even though there's angels flying overhead proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ. And so to me this is again further evidence that the time of the tribulation does not concern the church because she is with her Lord. It speaks of a, a time, a specific time in which God works in the world to bring his wrath. And he works specifically uh, to deal with the people of Israel. Now check out verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a great promise right there. Uh, when you're put on, on trial, when you're put on the spot for being a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will help you. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child. And children his children will rise against parent. And children will rise against parents. And have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So th this is a time on earth that is so evil. That even the closest family members will betray one another because of Jesus. I mean you just think of Christmas and all the time that we had together with family and with our kids and with grandparents and parents and all that stuff. This is a time when all of those relationships, Jesus will, he'll be the dividing point for all of those things. 
At this point, Jesus begins to talk about some of the things that will happen at the, the midpoint of the tribulation. Check out verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is a reference from Daniel chapter 9. In my mind, Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most important chapters almost in the Bible. You know, I went through four years of Bible school and nobody ever explained Daniel chapter 9 to me. It is worth uh, studying that chapter in your Bible. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 teaches that at some point in the future, the Antichrist will set up an image of himself in the rebuilt Jewish temple. Right now in Israel, there are uh, many uh, Jewish people that are preparing and working towards seeing the temple rebuilt on the Temple Mount. You know, when we've been to Israel, I mean, one of the places that's so fascinating to go and visit is the, the Temple Institute, where they are, you know, building all the instruments, designing the clothing, getting everything in order, everything in place for that temple to go back up. And they will reinstitute the practice of animal sacrifice there to atone for their sins. Here's the thing. As Christians though, we know that Christ Jesus gave his life once for all, right? The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He, he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive by the spirit. W with his blood, Jesus purchased men for himself. He purchased you and I. He redeemed us from sin. But the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah. They reject the work of his atonement for their sin and all that he accomplished on the cross. And the temple was destroyed because it was rendered meaningless. Jesus prophesied it would be destroyed and it was a meaningless building after the work of the cross. When the new temple is constructed in function, it's still a meaningless building. Because the cross is our atonement. The work that Jesus did there. But the temple is significant in this light. In regards to Bible prophecy and understanding the times in which we live. That's why, you know, it's exciting about the, possibi the possibility of it being rebuilt is exciting. Because it points to the fact that Jesus is coming. Because the abomination that causes desolation is a reference to Daniel chapter 9, which prophesies that halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will come into that temple and he will set up that place as a place of worship for himself. He will erect an image to his own glory and he will demand the worship of the world and Israel will believe him to be the Messiah. And Jesus said, when these things happen, in light of my word, you better get out of Dodge. <laughs> Run for the hills. In 70 AD, when Rome laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Christians took these words of Jesus literally. When, when the Roman armies began to come to Jerusalem, Christians took the words of Jesus and they said, this, this, we better get out of here. And they left and many of them uh, literally, you know, escaped the wrath of Rome. And that was a foreshadow of what would happen uh, in the great tribulation when the Antichrist would set up his imi the image of himself and demand the worship of the world. Uh, verse 15. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not return back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it will not happen, that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days, there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. So un, an, a, a period of time of unequal distress from the beginning of creation, from the time that God created the world, never to be equaled again, Jesus said. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for those he chose, he shortened the days. The, for the sake of the elect. That term elect in scripture identifies three different people groups. It speaks of Israel, Isaiah 65 verse 9. It speaks of believers, 1 Peter chapter 1. And it also speaks of tribulation saints, Matthew 24. And so imagine these days will be so evil that unless the Lord keep the time short, no one would survive. Verse 21 says, and if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So, even in an attempt to trick and fool people at this time, a, a satanic deception, some will even claim to have seen the Messiah or to be the Messiah. They may, well, it says, they'll have the ability to perform miraculous signs. You think of the magicians of Pharaoh, as we've been going through our Exodus series, who, who could perform miraculous signs and duplicate the things that Moses performed, but it was a satanic deception. And so Jesus says, don't be deceived about the nature of my coming. It's going to be obvious to all. And with those thoughts in mind, he says, be on your guard. I, I've told you ahead of time what is going to happen. And, and I would say this. Well, it says this in the New Testament. That should have a purifying effect in our lives. We should be on our guard. It should cause us to live with a greater sense of urgency. This message from Jesus should cause us to become bolder in sharing our faith with those who are lost. It should cause us to keep a focus on, e on eternity and not on the things of this world, to hold lightly to the things of this world, to loosen our grip on the things of this world and to cling to these promises. Verse 24, Jesus begins to share about what will happen at the close of this seven-year period. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the, pow and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. I think that's climate change. <laughs> Serious. Universal change. Uh, the final signs will be change in the cosmos. Stars following. Terrible signs in the heaven. Isaiah and Joel also prophesied about these things. They're, they're truly signs that are of biblical proportion, right? When the, when the cosmos is changing, chaos in the heavens and on earth. Verse 26. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Amen? Isn't that awesome? And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Look, when Jesus comes to the earth, when he returns after the great tribulation, his appearing will be glorious. It will be the event of history, the event of the ages. No one will be left guessing about his identity. Jesus will appear in the clouds and we will all see him and he will come with great power and glory and the word of God teaches us that we, his saints, will be with him. Verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. This verse describes the regathering of the people of Israel. See, the Bible still prophesies a, a glorious future for the people of Israel and the, the covenant that God established with Abraham. Paul teaches about it in Romans chapter 11. They will see Jesus. They will look on the one whom they have crucified and they will finally identify him as their Messiah and they will put their trust in him. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So the Lord says uh, to watch for the significance of the fig tree. To, to watch as it begins to become tender. In, in scripture, throughout scripture, the fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel. And I, I, I truly believe that the emergence of the nation of Israel is a sign to the world that the prophetic words of Jesus are going to be fulfilled. That there is a time of great tribulation coming upon the world that will last seven years and it will bring a devastation to the world that is unprecedented but will culminate with the second coming of Jesus. You know, for 1900 years, there was no nation called Israel. Uh, for 1900 years, they were a people group who maintained their identity and their culture but did not have a physical land. And in 1948, after you know, many Jews had been returning to their historic land for decades, a nation was reborn as prophesied by Isaiah and by Ezekiel and by Zechariah. Now Jesus says, well, he's gonna say, we, we don't know the, the day or the hour, but we can identify the season and the nation of Israel serves to help us identify the season. The fig tree has sent out her tender twigs. We recognize, even with some of the other nations that I mentioned, and th things that the Bible prophesy, prophesies about, that, that the rapture of the church and the, and the great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus is fast approaching. And you can blow that off and you say, no, pfft. Bible prophecy. Wake up. Wake up. Stay awake. That's what Jesus said. Not my words. It's his words. Stay awake. Verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. The question in this passage is always, what does this generation refer to? You know, is Jesus speaking of the generation of the disciples? Well, I don't think so because the second coming hasn't happened. It, it, it has to be a reference to the generation that sees these signs happening. And Jesus says the surety of these things happening are based on the eternal word. They're based on the eternal nature of Jesus who is God in the flesh. He said, my words are more lasting than nature and the universe. They're only temporary in light of the things that I am telling you. These are sure things. Now verse 32 says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Interesting, Jesus says, you'll recognize the season the fig tree will help you recognize that the season is approaching, but the particular day or the hour is not known. Only the Father knows. Let's read through the end of the chapter. Be on your guard. This is the application of all that he said. Be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly, suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's see, the application of this whole, the whole text, the whole message of Jesus, the whole culmination of all that he said, what really matters. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Don't be deceived. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You know, when I think about this text, I think, man, I, you know, I'm so glad that we're not looking for the coming of the Antichrist. That, that's not very exciting. <laughs> that's terrible. But we're looking for the coming of Jesus. For the master who, who's going to come to take us to be with him. And, and we're his servants. He's, he's put us in charge of things. He's given us work to do. And we need to be on, on mission with Jesus and on task with the gospel. And, and it's the hope of his coming that purifies us. He who has this hope purifies himself. And you know the reality is this. When the, when the day comes, when Jesus comes again, boy, no man will boast in his morality. No man will boast in his goodness. No man will boast in what he did for the Lord, he, he will be at the mercy of God. It, it won't be our flawlessness that saves us, but it'll be Jesus' faithfulness that we, we sung about. And, and there's one thing for sure that, that's money in the bank. Jesus is faithful. It, he'll be faithful to his words. He said, heaven and earth will pass away before one of these things, uh, before one of these words passes away. And so 
This morning, I, I, I want to just plant that seed in you for 2015. Wake up. I thought, you know, I've never had a church theme. Never for a year. I thought, man, maybe it should be awake for 2015. Be awake. And this morning, I just challenge you to, to, to feed your soul to, to with a heart and open eyes look for the coming of our Savior. I wonder what he has in store for us this year. But I know this, as Al read to us earlier and I pointed out to you in Psalm 138, God doesn't abandon the work of his hands. He fulfills his purposes for us. And, you know, one thing that, that is for sure is this, that whatever the season is, whatever the time is, God has placed you and I in this point in history to serve him. Could have placed us anywhere in history. He placed us to serve him today. And so I just challenge you, looking into 2015, yeah, be awake for the Lord. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? Stand with me. Let's pray. God, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And God, we thank you for the name of Jesus in which we have placed our hope. We are saved by the name of Jesus. And all that name represents the work of the cross and your death and burial and resurrection. And Jesus, we thank you that you promised your church, you promised your followers that you were going to prepare a place. And when the time was ready, you would come and you would take us to be with you where you are. You promised, Jesus, that you would come to the earth again. And so, Lord, we pray that as your people, God, that we would live with hearts awake, Lord, that we would stay awake, that we would look. I, I pray, God, that this year as we look to the sky every time, our, our mind would go, oh, where's Jesus? Is he coming Lord, may we live with a great anticipation for your return. And God, would you wake us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.